Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Survive This Crit, where my co-host Kylie and I combine our love for horror movies and RPGs and deep dive into some of our favorite horror movies. This episode we're going to be looking at The Sixth Sense. Just to let all our fans know out there, now that we're done with our Halloween spectacular, or should I say spooktacular, all our episodes will be releasing every other week again. Yay! Alright. Kylie, how are you doing? <laughs> I am doing well. I am embracing spooky season in full and just happy to be here. What about you? You just got back from a big trip, you know, across the You're pond. Right. Yes, I did go across the pond to the motherland of Italia. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Where can you I... say something in Italian now? Dove il bagno? Where's the bathroom? Yeah. Oh my god. That's nice. That was actually really good. Yeah, or uh, Le Mowgli. That's she's my wife. Oh, Le Me Mowgli. Was that something you had to say often? Were the Italian men just swarming over Kaya or something? Yeah, so I had to beat them all off with a stale piece of bread. Uh, no, it's just something I like practice in my mind a lot. Like, oh, you know, I was I was doing Duolingo, you know, while I was out there. So you were daydreaming like, of being able to get in a fight with someone and then say, El Miagio. Yeah, Miagio. Yeah, that's, that'll go over well. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're back. Do you have any other high moments? Uh, let's see. I was telling you earlier, uh, we did a little cooking class. Definitely was humbled by the chef there because he was asking us to do things that I was not prepared to do. <laughs> Oh. Um, mostly just uh, handling heavy equipment. I'll, I'll put it, I'll leave it at that. Oh, <laughs> no, oh. it's all good. It ended up tasting delicious. So it was great. Good, good, good. Highly, it's Halloween season. What have you been doing for in preparation for Halloween? Well, I have been preparing for our party by kind of doing some research on drinks I want to make. Cause I'm your drink and decorator for the party. Mm. So... The drinkerator. The drinkerator. And yeah, we're recording this in advance. So by the time this comes out, it'll be almost Thanksgiving. So what are we doing for Thanksgiving? <laughs> Eating. I don't know. Yes. Do you even know all the courses my family serves? Holy. Yeah. So it's always my mom's side of the family to get together. And the courses go, you know, we lay out some appetizers. You got your cheese trays, your meats, cold cuts, all that good stuff. And then, you know, we'll finish making the food. You got your typical main course of like sides and salads and turkey and everything going on. Mm. But then after the main course, then we have dessert, you know, as one would expect. And everyone brings yes. like 10 pies. And then we all have coffee. And then oh. one brave soul has to brave it out and go buy several party packs from Del Taco and bring it back for the family to eat. Are you serious? You guys after end the night dessert. with Del Taco? That's wild. And then some of the... It's a family tradition, Kylie. You can't break traditions. You weren't okay? kidding when it was like 12 courses. Who has Del so Taco you... at the... Okay, Don't ahead. question the tradition. You just go with it. Yeah, so we're eating burritos and tacos after that. And then some of the ants will then brave it out for the Black Friday sales. I guess you need the tacos to power through the Black Friday sales. 
because all the tryptophan from the turkey is going to make you sleepy. Exactly. So that is a typical family Thanksgiving. So, Nicholas, back to the film that we are doing. Will you give us a summary? All right. Personal summary of The Sixth Sense before I pull up the IMDb summary. There's a kid and he can't get over his own problems and and he's socially awkward and he sees dead people. Nick, I feel like you're kind of pointing inward toward yourself. Except that's oh, right there. And there's an adult male who can't name Malcolm Crow, who is completely oblivious to what is actually going on around him. That's because valid. <laughs> because and wouldn't you know it? He's been dead for a year and he hasn't figured it out. Yeah. Here we go. Here's the okay. actual summary from IMDB. Okay. Malcolm Crow is a child psychologist who receives an award on the same night that he is visited by a very unhappy ex-patient. After this encounter, Crow takes on the task of curing a young boy with the same ills as the ex-patient. This boy sees dead people. (gasps) Crow spends a lot of time with the boy, much to the dismay of his wife. Cole's mom is at her wit's end with what to do about her son's increasing problems. Crow is the boy's only hope. So, a little bit about this film. This film was actually released August 6th, 1999. The budget for this film was $40 million, but they spent another $15 million for marketing. So, they had a pretty large marketing budget. The film opened with $26 million the first weekend and grossed $672,806,292 worldwide. And kind of how that was split up was that it was $293 million domestic in the U.S. and $379 million internationally. So it was actually a much more popular international film than it was a U.S.-based film. This film was written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, and it won a ton of Critics' Choice Awards, People's Choice Awards, Teen Choice Award films for Best Drama, Best Actor, but they were totally snubbed, in my opinion, at the Oscars. They were nominated for Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Original Screenplay, Best Editing, Best Direction, and Best Picture, and it did not win any Oscars that year. Do you know which movies went out for those categories? I can pull them Okay, yeah, quick. I think I remember. So we, can, so we can do a comparison, 2000. Yeah, so we can decide for ourselves or not. We are smarter than the Academy. (laughs) Okay, so Michael Caine won Best Supporting Actor over Haley Joe Osment, um, which was, I mean, Michael Caine is super talented. (laughs) That's funny. I I picture old Michael Caine and juxtaposed with young Haley Joel Osment. Yeah. And just Michael Caine be like, get away, kid. My (laughs) award. Um, Angelina Jolie won Best Supporting Actress for Girl Interrupted over Tony Collette. The best editing was The Matrix, which doesn't surprise me. Um, mm-hmm. Best Original Screenplay, which was American Beauty, which also doesn't surprise me. But Best Director and Best Picture both went to American Beauty. So American Beauty just kind of swept the floor that year, which makes sense. It like People talk about it in film school and stuff. Like, they make a huge deal out of this movie. 
because it's beautifully done. But I personally like this the sixth sense more. That's just me. You know um, what? I've never seen those other movies, so they can all suck it because I've never heard of them. And yet here we are. I'm watching the sixth sense and talking about it. Whoops. So there you go. Exactly. So the distributor for this was uh, Buena Vista Pictures, aka Disney. And the production mm-hmm. companies involved were Disney and Spyglass Entertainment. This film starred Haley Joel Osment, Bruce Willis, and Tony Collette. And it's actually considered to be one of the highest grossing horror films of all time until it was surpassed by It in 2017. Yes. And in the year 2000, this film actually was like the top selling DVD and VHS. So all just further evidence for why this is actually a really great film. And yeah. uh, basically a horror staple, probably for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then so even though it was a huge success, the Disney executive who gave permission to everyone to make this film, David Vogel, who bought the script, he was fired because he didn't consult his superiors or supervisors before buying the film. And the yeah, film I heard actually- about that. So he bought it for 2.25 million, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then the board was just so angry and they were like, that's it. You're out because he refused to renegotiate some of the directive power that mm-hmm. Disney would have in the film. He was then fired for spending so much money on this movie. Yeah. And uh, they actually sold the film to Spyglass Entertainment, but they kept the distribution rights and 12.5% of box office takings. And they kept it at a low percentage because they assumed the movie wasn't going to do well. And it definitely, like, I'm sure far surpassed their expectations. So, Nick, we're now at your favorite point of Rotten Tomatoes. What do you think the tomato meter was versus the audience score? Well, Kylie, uh, I hate to inform you that this time I absolutely know what the tomato meter was because I came in well prepared and you'll see why later on. Okay. Critic score was, man, forgot. You you really hyped yourself up. You really hyped yourself up. 86%. Yeah, you're right. And then audience. Oh, oh. 90%. (laughs) There you go. Look at him. So with Letterboxd, do you think? What do you think on a scale of one to five, how it holds up with modern audiences? 4.6. Actually, you're not far off. It, it got a four out of five, not higher than what? that. Yeah. So the reviews, like most of these reviews actually are about Tony Collette specifically, which I think is hilarious. But a couple oh. of the other reviews are one by Derek Tionitz. Sorry if I got that wrong. The twist is great, but what's the most admirable aspect about this movie is how brilliantly it closes all the arcs of the movie, which is one thing I really like about it, too. Everyone's story actually has an ending. Kemper said, I've watched this movie three times in the past two weeks. I think that says something about how brilliant this movie is. Mm. So, Or just, you know, what she chooses to do with her time. But either way, it is a good movie. <laughs> So do we want to go into thoughts and opinions and then play some trivia? Yeah. Well, 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 first tell me, what were people saying about Tony Collette? Oh my gosh. There were so many. It was mostly just like weird stuff. Like mommy, Tony, 
Like that was like the general theme. Let me pull it up though. Oh, I mean like, oh, mommy. Yeah, more like that then. <laughs> Tony Collette has some up kids. I screamed seeing her in that look. Yes, 1999 Tony Collette, call me. <laughs> some of the reviews are just Tony Collette. And I don't know. Yeah. And then I don't a see lot it. of the other reviews were super long. That's why I didn't include them because like people were such big fans that they wanted to write essays about this movie. So that's why I also was like, I can't, I can't, I need to take one sentence from two reviews. I can't read your whole paragraph on here. But it was, yeah. There was a lot about Tony Collette on there. <laughs> so what did you think about this movie? What are your thoughts and opinions? My thoughts and opinions. I thought this movie was great. One thing I enjoyed was even after not seeing it for 12 years, the ending with Cole and his mom in the car, that got me. That got me. Like, I enjoyed the movie, like, the whole way through. It was very nice to see this charming story of a kid being helped by, you know, Bruce Willis to get through some of his most traumatic issues, you know, learning how to deal with something he doesn't understand in the world and yeah. actually having, you know, kind of like a, sort of like a father figure. Yeah, but oh, that, absolutely. But then that last scene where Cole is just like, he's he's finally taken up the, the call to action, which we all thought was actually a horror thing, but the call to action that mm -hmm. is, hey, I have a role in this world to help the people who have unfinished business you know get to their closure and mm -hmm. i have to boldly take that on as a 10 year old that's a big step and then to use that for his mother to give closure to both his mom and her mom I, like that that just yeah it made me want to tear up a little bit I, the last little tidbit my little experience with this movie was it was very funny that I knew the twist well before I ever watched the movie the first time either. Oh. Because here's the thing. I grew up a huge fan of Adam Sandler movies. And for anyone else who's a fan of Adam Sandler movies, one of his big movies at the time when I was about seven was Fifty First Dates. And I would watch that movie again and again and again. And what do they do in that movie? They, in that movie, they watch The Sixth Sense. And at the end, Drew Barrymore gives away the twist. She goes, I can't believe it, guys. I had no idea Bruce Willis was a ghost. Yeah. I always had that in the back of my mind. I was like, oh, Bruce Willis is a ghost. I was waiting to see how that all fits together when I first watched it as a teenager. I was like, oh, okay, now, now I get it. Was the payoff worth it for you based on how they did it, even though you knew what was going to happen? No, I would say that... The payoff was not worth it. The twist there, because I already knew, just, you know, when a twist gets revealed to you, a good twist, like when you're watching the movie, it just, it mind blows you. You're like, wait, what? And then you got to rewatch the movie to make sure you catch every little hint because yeah. you want to make sure you knew the clues are there because we all have to feel like we're really smart, right? It's true. That's true. So... I loved this movie too. I have a very personal story about the first time I saw it, but I'm going to save that for the next episode for our Pester the Guesters. So make sure to tune into that. 
but this film, I love it. It, I watch it every year. I cry every time I see it, like without a doubt. And it, it's just a really beautiful story. And I think the writing is great. It's really quotable. There's definitely some jump scares, which are fun, but it's not making your heart race the entire time you're watching it. So, Nick, would you consider this a horror film? You know what? I would just barely qualify as a horror film because it's got dead people walking around. But it feels more, I guess it fit more into that thriller category because that's where I typically throw movies that aren't quite terrifying, that I don't consider terrifying enough. Mm. Um, But I do have to concede that the rest of the world has called this movie a horror film and I can't really, if the rest of the world is saying it, you know what? I guess it's it's got to be true. Plus, if it's not a horror film, then it's not the highest grossing horror film for 17 years, and I can't take that away from it. So, That's fair. That is valid. I definitely consider this a horror film. I will say it's a bit emotionally more complex than a lot of the other horror films. Like, it's not as simple of a story as, like, a slasher. There's a lot more story arcs to connect. There's a lot more... There's just a lot more happening, and I think that's why I like it so much. It's not trying too hard to tell a story, but it wraps everything up really nicely. Because you know how there's some of those horror films that are trying so hard to be superior and so hard to tell, like, a elevated horror story, and then you watch it and you're just like, there. why was there a naked grandma? You know, were they... <laughs> I'm sorry, was that a dig on it? No, it actually wasn't. But there, I was I was thinking of a few different things and I wasn't going to say them because we may watch them. But that's just a common trope that I see in some of those films where they try really, really hard. To you mean like the movie elevated. Bodies, Bodies, Bodies? I actually haven't seen that still. So consider yourself lucky then. Okay. But I liked this film. I think it's definitely horror. It goes on my Halloween movie watch list every year without a doubt and you know it's just one of those two that gives me a good cry when i need it so the thing that sets this apart than other horror movies is the fact that there is elements of horror like you know trying to scare you but it's not by it's not like the movie's motive is to try and scare you it's rather a consequence of the actual story it's trying to drive forward which is the you know getting Cole to go through his character arc and his growth of having a supernatural ability and learning to uh, grasp it and make it his own. Yeah, I I would agree with that. It's and I I just really enjoy this movie. So, are you ready for monster movie trivia? Da, da. Let's do it. So, for our audience who has not who have not seen monster movie trivia before. What we do is we do some trivia about the film that we just watched, and Nick has three lives. Every life that he loses, he gets a slash. And if he doesn't make it, then he's dead. He's killed off. He does not win monster movie trivia. So I think, Nick, you have about a 50-50 chance. I feel like you win half of them, and then you die in about half of them. Is that a correct assessment? I think you're being a little charitable there. I probably lose more than half. For people who have not seen this before, as is tradition, I always try and come in unprepared for the audience's 
enjoyment, of course, for their comedic pleasure. Yes, yes. All right. I do this all for the audience. <laughs> all righty. So, number one, how old was Haley Joe Osment when the film was released? Starting out hard. Oh, boy. Wait, you said released. Released, as in, like, it came out into the movie theaters. Okay. Yes. 12 years old. Eh, you're wrong. He was 11. I should get a margin of error. What? To be fair, he looks like he's six years old at all times until he suddenly got old and became an adult. You have to make a dying noise. Slash. (laughs) So, as you can see, audience, uh, maybe I was really being charitable because he's already gotten one wrong, and that was one of my easy questions. Where was this movie filmed? Philadelphia. Yeah! Born and raised. What On the playground the... is where M. Night Shyamalan spent most of his days. Oh, are we rapping now? Yeah. <laughs> Have you not seen The Fresh Prince of Belair before? No. I didn't grow up with TV, Nick. I saw movies and that was it. Ugh. Okay, anyways. What does the term the sixth sense mean? Well, there are five human senses, Kylie. Touch, taste, smell, hearing, and sight. Okay. Three, At least three of those I do poorly in. The sixth sense is exactly that. It is the ability to see dead people. Or so some claim. Yeah. So it's an extra human sensory... I don't know. How scientific you want me to get into this? Or is that good enough? I mean, that was good enough, but I would be down to hear more. Apparently, you've done research on this. No, I'm just pulling this all out of thin air. Okay. So, the term supposedly originated in the 1800s to describe paranormal sensations that cannot be explained through the five senses. So, you got one right. Good job. All right. The next question is... That's two right, just so you know. No, you didn't get the first question. Oh, you got two right. Yes, you're right. Sorry. My bad. Number four. What is the name of the first patient who appears on screen? I mean, I know the actor who played him. Donnie Wahlberg's character. Vincent Gray. Vincent Gray. Yeah, good job. Oh, thanks. I wrote that one down, too. Obviously, I wasn't cheating and looking at my notebook, but, you know, I remember writing that down. Good job. Number five, what item did Lynn's ghost's mother bring to Cole? Lynn is Cole's mother, right? Yeah. It's the the little bumblebee pendant, right? Yeah. Oh, thank the Lord. All right. How did the little girl die? Oh, she was poisoned by her mom. What was she poisoned by? By poor motherhood. No. What was she poisoned by, you said? Yeah. Poison. I don't... That's not the question. She was poisoned by disinfectant. I'm not going to slash you for that because I added that just to make it a little bit more difficult. What now famous celebrity did his first audition for the role of Cole and did not get the part? Michael Sarah. Yeah. Damn, I thought you were going to get that wrong. You may actually know. Poor, poor Michael Sarah. Alan from Barbie movie. That's how he'll always be remembered. That and super bad. And Scott Pilgrim. Duh. Oh, and Scott Pilgrim, duh. But I can't picture him in this movie, so thank goodness he didn't get the role. 
Yeah. What language does one of Cole's toys speak? And what does he say? What? What language does his toy speak? Yeah. When he's like playing Which... with the little figurines. What? <laughs> okay. So Give... uh, do you want the answer? Drive my memory a little bit. No, no, no. Drive my memory here. What was the toy? You said it was a figurine. A figurine of what? Remember how Don't he had it. a bunch of different little types of army men and like clergies and stuff? Clergies? Just little figurines like army size. They're, they're that Okay. Small. Okay. What language were the army men speaking? And like clergy people, yeah. Because he had a bunch of And the clergy. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Now now that's kind of running back to me. He's talking Latin. What did he say? I have it written down. You know what? I'm going to take the hit, but I'm going to look it up. I didn't write it in Latin. I wrote the English translation. So you say the Latin thing. I'll say what it means in English. Okay. De profundis clamo a te domine. Which means, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Which is from Psalms 140. Mm -hmm. So, you got another slash. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> what happens to a room when ghosts are present and upset? Oh, the temperature drops. Good job. Good job. That was basic. Yeah. What does the sign say on Cole's tent? Boys rule, girls drool. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It just says do not enter. Yeah. So you actually oh, lived. You. Congratulations, Woo! Nick. You survived monster movie trivia. Good job. You did it. That was the first one in a long time. And I'm really happy for you. Here's a little reverse trivia question for you, Kylie. Okay. Because that interesting one I found. What physical feature... Do all spirit spotters, seers, I don't know, there's a specific term for them. What physical feature do they all share? Oh my gosh. I looked, I saw this fact too, and I didn't know what it meant. Will you remind me? Because I, I do not remember. They all have a streak of, or a small patch of white hair on their head. That's what it was. Yeah. I, I remember reading that and being like, huh. That's cool. And then totally forgetting about it. Forgot to write that one I down. thought it was especially cool because I too have a small patch of gray hair on my head. What I found out recently is that on the top of my head, the patch of gray hair is a genetic thing. The ones on the side are because I'm a stress case, you know? So come at me, people <laughs> who know me. But you know what? I've had a patch of gray hair on my head since I was like 13 or 12 years old. Nick, that probably means you can see dead people and you haven't been utilizing that this whole time. What if we become you know, a ghost hunting podcast? We could. I have not, I'm not saying I've seen dead people, but I am saying other people have claimed I've seen dead people before. Other, wait, okay. Other people <laughs> have claimed that you have seen dead people. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm sorry. Is there a story behind this? <laughs> Yes, there is a story. Uh, so I was about four years old and I was, you know, every Sunday my family would go to church and my dad was very involved with the church. Basically, well, really his whole family was very involved with the church. So my dad was kind of like this go-to guy for the church whenever they needed something done. So I remember 
we were going to church one Sunday and someone came up asking my dad to help during the mass, but you know, like off in the background somewhere and being four, I just wanted to go and uh, be with my dad and see what he was doing. Cause I was curious. So I went off and he was talking to this person and I got pretty bored after about 10 minutes or so. So I started to walk off and I went to go find the rest of my family who was, uh, you know, sitting in the pews and I got kind of lost looking for them, which is a little sad because it's not really that big of a room if you would actually see it, <laughs> but I got lost. I couldn't see where anyone was. And then this usher came by and he, you know, brought me to my family and my mom was kind of shocked. She was like, what? Nick, how did you find us? Because she even knew like it'd probably be difficult oh. to like find me. I was like, how did you find us, Nick? And I went, the usher, the, the usher showed me this, this old man. And she was like, what? And then she said, she says she looked up and she didn't see any old usher there. And then uh, at least a month later, or maybe a few weeks, whatever, I see a picture of my grandma with my grandpa. And for anyone who doesn't really know my background, I've never seen either of my grandpas before in my entire life. They all passed away before I was born. So I see this picture of my grandpa with my grandma. I point it out to my uh, older brother and I go, that's the man who helped me. Whoa. And so my whole family jumped onto this bandwagon that, oh, Nick, Nick has seen the ghost of grandpa. And I look at it now and I think, no, did I? Because I remember there being distinctively this old usher who's just a familiar face at the church. And I just suspect I probably saw him. And then being a four-year-old, I thought all old people look alike and probably just thought I saw him in the picture. I don't know. That's really cool, actually. I, that's really cool. Yeah, Skyly, I guess I see dead dead people. people. (laughs) yeah would you mind telling that person next to you right now that i see dead people (laughs) (laughs) don't tell me that (laughs) i'm gonna get anxiety okay so as we're gonna transition over into our deep dive this is a portion where we take aspects of behind the scenes of the film or separate but equally important topics to tie into the analyzing of the film per se so we're going to start with bruce willis and i think nick you have something fun to to start us off here yes okay so a little fun story about how bruce willis ended up starring in this film so a couple years before let's see it was i believe 1997 Mm-hmm. maybe 96 some somewhere along that time frame bruce willis was starring and producing in a movie called broadway brawler which was going to be basically a, a nice hockey movie and about three weeks into making the movie he fires the entire casting crew and basically disney loses a lot of money off of this and the whole project gets scrapped and in order to help make up for the for this loss, Bruce Willis signs a contract with Disney saying that he will star in three other movies and take a significant pay cut. 
So those movies, so those movies were, it was Armageddon in 1998, The Sixth Sense in 1999, and then The Kid in the year 2000, which I've never seen Armageddon. I've seen, obviously, The Sixth Sense and The Kid. He I was, didn't realize he had to sign on for three films because of that. That's crazy. That's a lot of yeah. work. Yeah, and he busted them out one year right after the other because Armageddon was 98, Sixth Sense was 99, and The Kid was the year 2000. Yeah, that's insane. That's really impressive that he was able to get it done that quickly. So What was really interesting was uh, people so credited him for, on this movie, really taking an active role in trying to make sure that everyone else was doing their best. So it's not like he was there and was like, oh, I have to be here. No, he actively took an interest in being a strong supporting cast member for for everyone else yeah that's what i got a lot too i have some quotes on that because he really was he and he said he's quoted to of saying that he actually enjoyed the role like he doesn't normally get to play gentle and introspective types of characters you know with his career being in die hard fifth element pulp fiction unbreakable he's not always getting to play like quieter introspective characters but he was mm-hmm. described by a lot of the cast as being very loving and like supportive like you said so he one of my favorite things that he did during this production was he made sure it was a good time for everyone involved so he would dj parties for the adult crew members at night <laughs> so one of the quotes from m night Shyamalan was bruce definitely introduced me to the notions of partying and letting loose Back in those days, he was a big DJ and the parties were super fun. And Shyamalan was only 28 in this film. So he said he gives Bruce Willis credit for giving him his first hangover. And he said that Bruce Willis kept giving him shots that he kept calling candy. I want a picture of Bruce Willis. I'm assuming when you say DJ, like we're talking about the full on DJ, he's got the turntables and he's got the headphones. I want I I want that picture of Bruce Willis. Maybe I'll find a way to Photoshop that for you and get it for Christmas or something. One thing I was going to say, too, is because you were saying, like, this is one of the few roles where he gets to be gentle. I was going to make a little joke and say, this is also one of the few roles nowadays where he gets to have hair. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So Donnie Wahlberg described him as being really curious and humble of a person. He said, I remember when we went to the premiere of The Sixth Sense that he just kept hugging me and saying, you did so good. You really helped the movie. But afterwards, when we talked, he was like, what did you think? You think this movie is going to do well? And Donnie Wahlberg says, I love the script. So I was like, this is going to be the best movie ever. And he was like, really? You think so? So he's just described as being really humble and not presumptuous, not assuming. So it's cool and refreshing, I think, to see an actor like that. And another interesting thing for this film specifically was that Bruce Willis was left-handed, so he had to learn to write with his right hand. So that way the reveal of the wedding ring would uh, actually work in the film. That's impressive. I cannot, for the life of me, write with my left hand. I could barely write with my right hand. (laughs) Well, you're an engineer. That kind of makes sense. I'm really good at typing. Uh, let's see. Oh, but you mentioned Donnie Wahlberg. A little small tidbit about him. For those who don't know, Donnie Wahlberg, brother to Mark Wahlberg, co-owner of the Wahlburgers, some great burger restaurant. But he started out as a singer 
on a little known 80s group called New Kids on the Block for anyone who's a big fan of the 80s. Oh my God. I say little known, but they were actually a big deal back then. So that's where Donnie Wahlberg's uh, career started off. Then he got to do this part. And Which... to me, it was, just, it was just crazy. For anyone who doesn't know this, he lost 43 pounds to play this role. And he was only on screen for three minutes. I will give him props for how great of a job he did. I do think he's a little bit insane for wanting to lose all that weight, but I don't think he actually knew how long he was going to be on screen. Well, for this role too, so he went fully method. So in addition to losing weight, he moved to New York and like stayed in a friend's apartment. He didn't bring money. He would just fast for a few days at a time and eat, then just eat vegetables and chew gum all day and just kind of walk in the streets. And then he, when he was in Philadelphia for filming, he actually slept in the park one night to really get like in the mindset of that role. I don't know. Did his character seem, I don't, I don't think we knew too much about Vincent Gray as a character, besides the fact that he was also a seer. I think he was trying to psychoanalyze a character like that who is so mentally disturbed that functioning isn't an option. So I think maybe in Donnie Wahlberg's mind, he's like, oh, it makes sense if this character is homeless. So I'm going to sleep in a park and travel without money so I can see, like, really live that experience. And I think he, that's also why he was cutting so much food out, too, so he could really play such a mentally ill character. The way, where I thought you might have been going with that, but I thought it was hilarious. It's like, oh, he's thought this person is mentally ill. So, of course, he moved to New York, got an apartment there. <laughs> I mean, there's some wild no. folks in New York. I, I love New there's York. There's wild now. folks everywhere, but yeah, especially New York. So, I want to move on to Tony Collette, if you're ready. Yeah, let's hear it. What, what do we know about Tony Collette? So, Tony Collette actually had a shaved head throughout the film. So, she wore a wig the entire time they filmed. Uh, Wait, why did she shave her head? So I think it was for um, either another role or audition at the time. But because of this, um, Shyamalan and Bruce Willis loved her audition so much, but they were worried that Disney wasn't going to hire her because she came in bald for the audition. So what they actually did, they agreed they liked her the best. So they didn't even show Disney her audition tape. But I believe she was bald because of another role possibly. And she actually brought in her own wig for filming. So it was like possibly a wig from Velvet Goldmine, but it wasn't something that uh, the costume department prepared for her. It was like her own wig, which considering it was her own, it was really well done. It, it looks like a good wig <clears throat> the whole time. It doesn't look trashy or anything. So Honestly, I couldn't even tell that was a wig. So, you know. Right? Good, good. She looked, good quality. She looks great in this film. I get why everyone was commenting all the crazy comments that they were she looked amazing but i and i didn't even realize it was tony collette because i haven't watched a lot of her stuff but when i was re-watching this i was like oh my gosh that is tony collette it's crazy because i've been mostly watching things with her in it 20 years later not in the late 90s tony collette actually started having some spooky occurrences while this was filming so she would start meditating a lot, but she would wake up 
at night and look over at the clock and it was always a repeated number. Like it was 111 or 333 or 434. That was like a spooky occurrence she kept having throughout filming in the hotel they were staying at. And, you know, Tony Clett is a big household name now. She also was in Hereditary, Knives Out, Little Miss Sunshine, and a whole bunch of other things. So that was mo- what I pretty much had on her. But I did a little bit of digging on the background of Haley Joel Osment, if you want to hear some of that. Me too. Yeah, you go ahead and I will add on to what you have. So how about I just start off with his his basic biography here, what I wrote down. So for, for anyone who doesn't really know much about Haley Joel Osment, he was a huge name in the late 90s. He was like the go-to child actor kid and rightfully so because he was very skilled. So other than The Sixth Sense, he was in Secondhand Lions. He was in this movie called AI with Jude Law. He was a very, very talented, but he got his start actually in a Pizza Hut commercial. Cool. And uh, part of why he ended up being as skilled as he is now, well, actually not just now, but back in the late 90s, he's the son of a stage actor, uh, Eugene. Osmond, which maybe you've heard of him. I hadn't really heard of him before. But the I've point is that. Him, but his style makes sense that he had a stage actor dad. Because his acting is not traditionally like. He, he, he's not who you'd think of for on camera acting. He's just so good. He's just so. He, he yeah. reaches people in a different way than most on camera actors. And a lot of people, including M. Night Shyamalan, were just rightfully impressed by how much talent this eight nine ten whatever age he was for any of these films how much he was coming forth like for example the day that uh Haley came in mm-hmm. to to audition he mentions like oh i read the script and and that Shyamalan goes you mean like you, you read your part for this scene like like a couple times he goes no no, no i read the script the entire script a few times and he goes what <laughs> and obviously i assume a lot of that is just like encouragement from his father and whatnot i tried to do a little bit of digging to see if there was more of this uh if this was a typical traumatic childhood backstory but actually it turned out his family is very supportive of him of him he had a pretty good childhood his mother's sixth grade teacher his young he has a younger sister for those of you who are fans of hannah montana or uh, some of her other work it's emily osmond oh my gosh i don't think i realized they were siblings i knew they had the same name that's cool so yeah emily osmond what was it plays lily and hannah montana um one of the kids in spy kids and then she had that other show that came out a few years ago about cooking or something young like and that hungry there we go young and hungry but then later on Right around his teenage years, he kind of dropped off and he focused more just on his education. He attended NYU. He currently works as a screenwriter. And I think one of his more recent works, he's in a movie back in 2014 called Sex Ed, which at first I was looking at it and was confused because of the uh, Netflix show Sex Education. Yeah. I was like, is he in that? But I know he definitely, I think he played a small part in the movie The Boys, where he basically got to redo his role as Cole. He played a kid who was famous in the 90s, but actually had a superpower 
of seeing not dead people but being able to predict or read people's minds or something like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah i remember he was, it was a that. spoof of himself he played a spoof of himself in the in the tv show the boys is what he that was on tv shows a lot portraying himself i've noticed but um i also read that he's also had a successful voiceover career but I oh had... yes actually that's so that was the biggest one that got me excited about him yeah. which was uh the last thing i want to mention for anyone who's a kingdom hearts fan i'm a kingdom hearts fan i found out that he was the voice of the main character sora and i was like what no way this mind guy blown. i loved it mind That's... blown so anyways that was all the research i did with with Haley joel osmond i had one other tidbit but i want to see if you covered it okay so with, with yourself. for Haley joel osmond he's really described by others as someone who just really enjoyed playing with other kids but he was also deeply brilliant so he knew how to have conversations with adults and interact with adults at a really young age without you know the normal parental guidance he like you said he described his career as a positive experience as a childhood actor unlike the common trope of childhood stars that like spin into darkness he is quoted saying all my friends like movies but I like how they treat me normal when I come home. It's good to be a normal kid when the acting is done. Uh, and it's primarily because he was in adult films. He was in films made for adults. So the kids didn't really know him as famous. I found, I'll link in the show notes, a cool article that he had in 1999. And a cool behind the scenes video from the film. Because he is just so incredibly well spoken for an 11 year old in these interviews he just you can tell he's very very smart and introspective in a way that we just don't see a lot today or we don't celebrate a lot today so his audition though for this film was like you said he had come in reading the whole script unlike most kids but he also came in and auditioned in an oxford shirt and tie which is another thing that got m night Shyamalan's attention because all the kids were coming in in like baggy t-shirts and uh, M. Night Shyamalan was like, I, he wasn't thinking he was actually going to be able to find a child actor in LA because they were, you know, going to be filming in Philadelphia. So they were considering hosting auditions out there, but they, and he said that because kids in LA, according to him, tend to lose their naturalness and they tend to lose the innocence that they had. But because he saw Haley Joel Osment's audition and he saw just how serious and how innocent and how natural an actor could be he was able to hire him and know that that was the right choice and M. Night Shyamalan also said that like Haley Joel Osment took his work seriously they were able to treat him basically like an adult on set they they didn't have to baby him so and one other thing is um I didn't realize he was in Forrest Gump so that's pretty cool. Oh, yes. That that was his breakout role. His, his first ever. He was Forrest Gump Jr. Yeah. So is there anything else you had on Haley Joel Osment? Yeah, there was one thing. Like I said, I wanted to see if you were going to touch on it. If you didn't. One thing okay. that I thought was interesting was apparently in order to help get him to cry for certain scenes, mm -hmm. if he wasn't like able to cry on cue, they would have Bruce Willis come in and yell his lines as Malcolm to the kid, to to Haley, and 
then that would get him in the right mindset of crying. Like that's why I thought like maybe this that's what got me into looking like, oh, okay, let's see if this falls his whole backstory is the common traumatic child star was it just turns out no that was just something that they all agreed upon as like this is how we're gonna get you to cry yeah okay the videos i saw he was able to cry on cue without anything like that but it would make sense i mean if you're doing 15 takes of this a day and you're crying about the same thing over and over after a while it probably gets really difficult to keep doing that so it's nice that he was able to have a supportive production team help him cry but one other thing i noted was m night Shyamalan actually makes a cameo appearance in this film as dr hill the doctor who Lily oh, yeah. talks to after the birthday party m night Shyamalan is famous for that are you i didn't catch it but i'm not surprised that you say that because he did the same thing in the village yeah and he so his parents were both doctors so that's why he he jumped into that particular role but he said that he was unhappy with how his performance turned out. Like that scene was supposed to be a lot longer and he ended up cutting a lot of it down. Because he's so critical of himself. But yeah, you know, he seems like a pretty critical guy. He takes himself very seriously, which is good for him. He he does a lot of good work. So So do you want to talk about M. Night Shyamalan? You know, because everything that I do, every film we talk about, I find one thing that usually just like sucks me in and makes me research a whole bunch more so i ended up watching a lot of m night Shyamalan interviews but what was the thing that sucked you in the thing that sucked me in is that he is really like one of the things that he really enjoys about his career is like he's a really silly fun loving guy that's how he self-described how other people describe him he's not sadistic but he really likes being mischievous with his audience and adding a little bit of unsettling features but not just as he describes in a couple interviews he's like i can't make torture that's not what i want to do i want to be mischievous and add a little bit of spooks and darkness but that's not what this is about there's a greater story at hand so he just he describes himself as telling dark stories about the good of human beings and he likes towing the line between nihilism and optimism so I liked that he he seemed very self-assured in who he was as a director. And I think that's one reason why I liked him so much, because he was only 28 when he made this film. So he he was young when he this came mm. out. And he's done so much. He's done The Visit, Split Franchise, Devil, so much more. And he's always had a knack for... Life. Actually, Tylee, you, you have to use the right nomenclature. It's not the Split Franchise. It's the East Rail 177 trilogy. Please. Okay. Get it right. That thing. And he has, like, it seems like he has a really good knack for horror and supernatural, but telling interesting stories within it. And he's also had interesting spinoffs, like, not spinoffs, but one-off films. Like, he was a part of Stuart Little, The Last Airbender, and She's All That. Never say that. Don't ever say that movie title again. Last Airbender. I know that was not one of his better ones, but we're here to talk about his horror films, not some of his other stuff. Yes, we'll get into the other stuff later. So, supposedly, his cumulative gross for his films is actually like over 3.4 billion globally. So, he's he's had a successful career, there's no doubt about that. And he's described as being a visionary who likes to focus on the whole of the story, not just the shot-for-shot process. 
because you know when you're filming something you may only do two or three lines of something and it's really easy to get hyper fixated on each individual scene that you're filming and not focus on the arc and focus on how everything connects but I think he does a really good job of focusing on this is the entirety of the story not just here's what I want this one scene to look like so he also though had a really interesting process for directing children because he had experience doing it and he was like he in an interview talks about how no one wants to watch a kid sat on screen it's really emotionally draining for adult audience members and it's really hard to come back from so he actually focused on directing Haley to portray emotions like fear and anger things that would promote him to be a fighter not for people to take pity on him and I feel like he took those notes really well because I was thinking about that quote and kind of reminiscing on the movie and whenever he's like in tears and stuff usually it's coming from a place of like frustration or fear or anger it's not from like I feel bad for myself and I want you to feel bad for me too some people in regards to the inspiration of the film they thought they that he took his inspiration from the Nickelodeon film are you afraid of the dark but oh yeah I heard about this yeah, but according to M. Night Shyamalan, he's never seen it. He said his inspiration... Uh, you know, sure, M. Night Shyamalan, sure. No, I'll, I'll believe it. He said his inspiration came from when he was writing in his notebook about a little boy at a funeral. And the image that came to mind was that he was on the stairs talking to no one. But in his mind, he wondered if the little boy was talking to the person who died at a funeral. So... In addition to that general outline, then in his third and fourth draft, he came up with the idea of making the protagonist, the little boy, this hyper-compassionate character. So that way, the overall theme for Haley and M. Night to talk about was that this film is about communication and compassion, not just talking to ghosts, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing the story about the whole sixth sense and the are you afraid of the dark episode what i remember most about it was i i heard the description of the story it sounded different enough where it's like you know what like it's fine like there's nothing really original under the sun anyways so it's not it's not a big deal to me and i mean people have been making content about ghosts and talking to dead people for years and they're gonna keep doing that so maybe subconsciously he was inspired by one of those things but I, I do appreciate that it was an original screenplay it wasn't adapted material from a book it wasn't adapted material from a movie or a show like it was all his brain which I appreciate just to touch back into into this conversation a bit one thing I don't know if you know but this movie was almost going to be even scarier than what it actually was released as did you know about the deleted scene no, what was the deleted scene about? I do know they so, had to cut a bunch of stuff so it could remain PG-13, but I didn't know what happened. So that so that was the reason for this deletion. For those who watched the film, if you remember, there was a burn victim woman in one scene for a little bit, and we can remember how gruesome she probably looked. Thing is, is that there was supposed to be a scene where we see Cole looking out the a window i'm assuming in his own room 
and he looks completely terrified and we don't see what it is but then we see what he's seeing outside of his window and apparently across the street is a hospital where there was a huge fire and he's seeing dozens and dozens of burn victims in like every single room of the hospital or something like that and they were they had filmed that it was almost going to be in the movie but then like i said to make sure the movie stays pg-13 they ended up cutting that all together yeah i i vaguely remember hearing about something like that now and i'm i'm glad they cut it because i feel like the instances that they showed the ghosts were like manageable i think if they showed a whole swarm of ghosty boys burning i think that would have been kind of difficult even for viewers to take in because it would have been just so drastically more violent than everything else in the film so for this uh film m night Shyamalan is really just described as a family man he really values his wife and his daughters and his in-laws like they kind of have a whole little tribe and they all live really close to each other and he just really values that family time and i think a lot of that came up from his upbringing so here was an interesting quote from the new yorker a little bit about his upbringing as a filmmaker of color who came before Hollywood's millennial-era reckonings with diversity, Shyamalan resisted being defined by difference without downplaying it either. Shyamalan's quoted saying, Maybe because I'm an immigrant, because I've always been like the one Indian kid in school and all that stuff, I've never been able to quite fit in, he told me. In 1970, when he was six weeks old, Shyamalan immigrated from Pajuri, India, to the United States with his parents who were doctors. He attended Catholic private schools where he stood out in parts as an academic overachiever. Being considered an outsider has always been okay, he said. You always have the desire to be accepted, but I want to be able to say these are the value systems that are important to me and I'll burn the house, I'll burn down the house for them. So I just really liked that quote because I feel like it just said a lot to who he is and what he values instead of just trying to make films and stuff to appease societal norms and demands which leads me into my last point like over the last few years the media has really targeted him targeted him as a creative burnout and as someone who only makes b-list films i audiences were so quick to forget like he was making oscar worthy films and now because he's making some films that are different than what audiences want they're now getting their panties in a bunch saying that he's a creative burnout, which I don't think is true. I know you have a lot to say about M. Night Shyamalan too. You know, yeah, and I guess that's the perfect segue now into our, now we're getting into our debate part. Fine. Here we go. All right, Look, bring it. Do I think M. Night Shyamalan has skill as a director? Yes, he has definitely made some great movies. That cannot be denied. The Sixth Sense was great. Uh, personally, I'm a fan of Unbreakable and Split. The last movie in the East Rail 177 trilogy, Glass, was terrible. Um, so to say that he's a creative burnout, I don't know that creative burnout is the right word. He's definitely losing steam. I think, because I was for report today, I was looking into first who he is as a director and how people who have worked under him have responded to his methods. And it turns out he's actually a really cool guy. 
he cares a lot about his art and he he's firm and he knows how to motivate his people which is great so he has skills as a director but he cannot seem the the fact is if you look at all of his films which i did i looked at the ron tomatoes just critic score audience score did a whole breakdown of what the average score was critic wise he comes in at 48 percent, somewhere around that number wow. on average and audience wise he comes in at 57 percent. basically if you take the sixth sense out of the equation it the whole number just drops uh starting from most popular to least popular six cents came in with an audience score of 90 percent, and then the second one is split which had 79 mm-hmm. percent. so if i just get rid of the six cents altogether that i mean we're looking at 45 percent, 55 percent. so not a terribly significant drop but still that's not the best numbers so here's what i think about it okay he's He's made some great movies, mm-hmm. but he's also made a fair share of flops. And especially as an Avatar The Last Airbender fan, that in and of itself is the most grievous sin. I mean, Kylie, you know, he was trying to make that as a gift to his daughter, who was a fan of the show. He saw yeah, her like it. That got 5%. That's, that is cr- pretty bad. It's It was really bad. And look, so I will, I will admit to my bias there, but still, and the other thing is he does a decent job is of writing twists. He was really good at it in the nineties and even up to the mid two thousands, but then it kind of became his gimmick. Mm. And the problem with that is when, you know, every time that a director is going to make a movie and the whole point of the movie is that there's going to be a twist everyone's not watching the movie to just watch the movie everyone's watching it to prove how intellectual they are and find how many hints they can see and predict the twist at the end which I feel like is jordan not peele does great. that too yeah jordan jordan peele does that a little bit as well so is m night Shyamalan good at making movies yes he he does he knows what he's doing he's making great choreography for all of his all of his different shots and like i said he, he's really good at motivating his cast and crew as, according to other people's testament mm-hmm. but fact wise he has not come out with anything really good in quite a while oh. at the end of the day that's kind of what you have to do you have to make some stuff that the people like to it's the i i will also you know what i will also give him a, a little bit of applaud for sticking to trying to make original stories not everyone does that nowadays so i would say if he were here in the room i would say to him no you haven't made anything good in a while you seems like you kind of been living off the steams of the sixth sense and other things that you didn't you would say that uh, early on but i would encourage him to keep going forward because i'm sure he can make some other good stuff he just hasn't done it in a while and i think he has he has the talent to do so he just hasn't figured out the right thing yet yeah you know i i agree with a lot of what you've said i will say though for arguments point i will say that not necessarily all of his movies are bad i think saying that something did you watch the happening no but i will say that labeling something as bad is very subjective 
and it's due to an individual person's perspective and experience. So I know that there are some diehard like M. Night Shyamalan fans out there who love all of his work just because of who he is as a director. And I think I do like how he treats his actors and his crew. I like that he does, like you said, original stories, but I don't necessarily think he's reached a creative burnout. I honestly, I can't quite tell what's going on because I know his newest film is an IP that he got the rights to. So Are you I talking about Knock on the Cabin or yeah. Knock at the Cabin? That's based See, on a that's book. the thing. Like, I'm probably going to watch that tonight and I'm excited to watch it because it looks interesting. He has interesting things. It's just that some of his stuff have been kind of a hit and a miss. And that happens. Yeah. I mean, I feel he like just... most most directors end up having that point in their career. But I will say, I think he is still super talented because you don't write a film. Like, it's almost becomes like an imposter syndrome. If you make a film as big as like The Sixth Sense, you probably have that mm -hmm. insecurity in the back of your mind of like, can I ever make something that great ever again? Because it was something that pretty much all audiences loved. There was not a specific group that was like, I hate this movie. So mm -hmm. I I would say he's super talented. And I would say a lot of people maybe haven't liked some of his more recent stuff. But I wouldn't necessarily peg it as being bad because of that. I haven't seen a lot of his recent stuff. I've seen Split and I really enjoyed it. So well, it was I'm very not... good, yes. I have not seen most of his more recent stuff, but I am going to now that I've seen, mm -hmm. like, done more research on who he is. I'm more interested in watching his work. But I think we should, at this point, we both can say in agreement, he's talented. Mm -hmm. Some of his stuff has not been received well by audiences in recent years. Hence why people are labeling him as a creative burnout, which I personally don't agree with because I, I believe that you can bounce back from that and that he still has the brain and the potential to keep making stuff that audiences will like yeah and i'm even willing to concede yeah burnout is probably the wrong term again it's just going back maybe to like or maybe like just a sports analogy of like you know hit and a miss sometimes you just you have a bad streak yeah but i, I will say mm -hmm. i applaud him because you're, you're talking about like, oh, well, maybe there's this imposter syndrome of can he ever make something as good as The Sixth Sense again? The answer is maybe not. But that means it says something that he keeps coming back and trying again and again. You know? Amen. Yeah. I like that. You summed that up really well. So I'm going to zip over to production design and costumes because I just have a couple little things about that. So... Bruce Willis's wardrobe was a very key indicator of who he was. They would make very slight adjustments to alter his wardrobe while keeping the main pieces. So that way, when they did the reveal of the bullet going through his back at the very end, you would realize, oh, shoot, he's been wearing the whole co same costume the whole movie and we didn't notice. So as a uh, note on that, the costume designer was Joanna Johnson. She and her incredible team did a great job creating very subtle changes that audiences would assume he's wearing something different. So some of her other credits are Death Becomes Her, Forrest Gump, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Back to the Future 2 and 3. A couple other production notes that I had was Red was a prominent theme. 
whenever a dead person would be close by. So if you look back and think about all the moments that Cole is about to interact with a ghost or does interact with a ghost, you see like a red blanket, a red sweater, a red balloon. All those are key indicators of what's happening. They would, you know, for making the actors cold, they would literally do just that. They would drop the AC and make the actors oh. cold for that scene. Did you happen to read about the Haley Joel Osment one scene? I guess it was like in the tent. What what happened with him for that? No, what happened? They would keep so like you were saying, they they kept the room below freezing and he had to be in his underwear. Oh and that's how they because they didn't have CGI to like yeah. make the whole breath fog. fog, there you go, appear. Mm-hmm. So he for I don't know how long, but probably a significant amount of time because they're trying to film the scene. They had that little the little boy just chilling in his underwear in a below thirty two degree Fahrenheit room. That sounds which I thought was like wow, so cold. Yeah. So the film is primarily, like you said, there's no CGI, so they get away with doing a lot with very fairly like vaguely ominous scenes with really low lighting and lots of shadows. And I think that's one thing that makes this film stand out is like there is no CGI or special effects, but it still works. And I think a big part of that is due to the makeup team. The the makeup team, a couple people on that are Richard Alonzo, who was special effects, um, who worked on a lot of the 2000s Star Trek films. Michelle Bigger, who was on Avatar, King Kong, the 2005 version, and Allegiant. So I think... It's important to note that some of the ominous vibes that they were getting and some of the scariness was because of the makeup that they did with the ghosts because they did simple things that worked. And the DP uh, or cinematographer was Tak Fujimoto, who we know from, I believe it's uh, Silence of the Lambs, and he worked in Star Wars. So we have another connection there to Star Wars and one of the other films that we've talked about. And the one other thing I had was just a fun, two fun facts. So M. Night Shyamalan, like I said, is from Philadelphia. So when he filmed this, he made a point to use a lot of specific location hints, like pen made sour cream, which is only available in Philadelphia. A lot of new logos for the Philadelphia Eagles and 76ers from 1996 and 97. And the one last little thing that I had was the actress who played Kyra, you know, how she's like basically puking all the time. Mm-hmm. I've done this in a short film before. So usually what they do is a soup, like a chunky soup or oatmeal um, that they have you hold in your mouth. And then you like on camera have to be like, and do it correctly. Oh. Um, I heard so, she had to hear uh, hold soggy cereal in her mouth. Yeah. Is that what it so was? It, I, I believe that's what it was because I, I was trying to find the right information. But typically in movies, they'll do like a type of chunky soup, soggy cereal, oatmeal, something like that, or like a canned food. I think I did canned corn when I did mine. That um, was added. Yeah, it was it was gross. Like you honestly, like when you fake puke, part of you wants to puke actually a little bit because it's a lot to hold in your mouth that sounded dirty that was not my intention but yeah so I thought it was cool that I mean for audiences who don't know that's a little magic of behind the scenes how 
you can get actors to puke convincingly on camera and it for to really look like vomit. I'll add a little bit more t- since you were just finishing up there with the, the, uh, the fake puke story, which yeah. was the actress that played Kyra. I remember hearing a story where she was showing that, well, the movie, but then they got to that one scene. She was showing the movie to some of her friends and, or might've been her sister and they were watching the scene. And when she did her fake puke scene, they had to leave the room. Dang. She was too good at it. She was too good. She couldn't handle it. I thought that was very funny. That's awesome. That is funny. Thank you everyone so much for tuning in to this deep dive episode of Survive This Crit. I encourage you all to share this episode with a friend. We are actually trying really hard to get some amazing guests on our show next year, like ones that are going to blow your mind. And a lot of that, we need the algorithm to help us to be able to get those people to be on our show. So please uh, make sure to like, share the show, make sure to comment, and tell us what movie we should do next as we're planning out our new year. So Thank you so much and bye now. Bye everybody.